We're going to be looking, starting in the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews is toward the end of your Bible. Uh, We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. On the notes that are on the back of your bulletin that you got, your program that you got as you came in, uh, there's some notes there, and you see I referenced a lot of verses from the book of Hebrews because the topic we're going to look at this morning, thinking about this idea of a new covenant, is tied all within the book of Hebrews. And so there are many different passages we, we can look at, but we're going to focus to begin with here in a minute on, on Hebrews chapter 8. This is one of those mornings where students, you'll have a chance to participate in a little bit of a miracle. Uh, we're t- covering a topic that is one of those foundational pieces of doctrine and theology, and it really requires us to engage our minds. And you haven't slept at all this, this weekend. So uh, I was really torn between, okay, this is kind of one of those foundational doctrine sort of things. What am I doing to the students uh, offering this? But, but it ties in, and it's a very important foundation for this sermon series we're going through that we're calling We Tunes. Uh, we're in the middle of a studying different passages that have to do with music and worship for a church in the 21st century. So how do we think about music? How do we think about worship in the 21st century? And this is one of those foundational passages, foundational concepts we we really need to cover. Students, if you find yourself getting kind of sidetracked, ask yourself, is it okay for a Christian to get a tattoo? Now, I'm not going to answer that question directly this morning, but this concept actually plays into that a lot. So if you get lost at some point in what we're talking about, you go back to that question because what we're getting at here this morning is what is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? This is a difficult concept. It's something we need to think through over and over and over again, and it definitely applies to this topic of music and when we think about what does it mean to worship. So we're thinking this morning about new covenant worship And we're going to start out in Hebrews chapter 8, and let's begin reading in verse 1. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. He's talking about Jesus' ministry here. So I know we're we're jumping into the middle of something. He's talking about the ministry of Jesus here. In verse four, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle in the Old Testament. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. Okay, before we go to verse 7, if covenant doesn't work in your mind, just insert the word agreement. And and that might help make sense of a little bit of this. But... Verse 7, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, 
The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He's quoting from Jeremiah in the Old Testament at this point. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Father, thank you for what it means that we've gathered here this morning, not to check off a religious box, but God, Father, we have gathered here to worship as your people, and we do that through fellowship, just as we meet one another, care for one another. We do that through singing psalms. We do that through prayer. We do that through the study of your word. And Father, we are a people in need of your presence and your power. Father, show us this morning what it means to be Christians who engage in new covenant worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what's going on here in Hebrews? Well, we're seeing this development of the idea of a new covenant, a new agreement that God would make with his people. If you look there in verse six, it says, but the ministry... Uh, that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs. So this ministry that's being talked about in the Old Testament, the ministry of giving sacrifices, the ministry of the priests in the tabernacle, Jesus' ministry is as superior as the covenant is superior since he is the mediator and it's founded on better promises. So there's something about this new ag- agreement that God is going to make with his people through Jesus that is in some way better or, or passes by the old one. Now, at this point, I want to make a couple of distinctions. The book of Hebrews has been used sometimes as an anti-Jew, anti-Semitic sort of book that when it says that Jesus is the better mediator, the better covenant, the better promise, that that's been used uh, for hatred or violence or rejection of the Jewish people. What you find, though, is it's not a rejection, it's a fulfillment, that who Jesus is and what Jesus does, Jesus was a Jewish person. He came not to reject the Jewish religion, but to show the fulfillment, to show all that God was doing through his people. But in Jesus, God makes a new agreement with his people, and it's an agreement that the book of Hebrews says is going to be better. It's an agreement that's going to surpass the one before. Because in verse 7, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant or that first agreement, no place would have been sought for another. Then he tells a little bit about what's wrong with it. And then look down in verse 10. It begins to tell you about this covenant. So this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Notice right there, it's not a rejection of Israel. It's not a rejection of the Jews. God's going to make this covenant with his people. He's going to make this agreement. What's the covenant? I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. In the first agreement... Where did God put his laws? Well, that's obviously a rhetorical question. You just kind of answer in your mind. He put them on stone tablets. 
He wrote them down and gave them to his people. He gave them through the law of Moses. But it says here that in this new agreement, I will put them in their minds and write them on their hearts. So there's something about the internalizing nature. This covenant, this agreement that God's going to make with his people through Jesus is not going to be on stone tablets. It's not going to be on this law passed down from Moses. It's going to happen within the hearts of the people. It's going to change them. This is the key. It's going to change them from the inside out. That as God gives them his spirit, as he works through Jesus Christ in this new covenant, it's something that will change them from the inside out. And we always have to get these steps in the right order. That what we do in coming before the Lord is we don't get ourselves right on the outside and then he does the work. What the students learned this weekend is that God does that work on the inside. He makes us new. He makes us alive. And then that transforms how we live. That transforms the outside. That's at the very core of what this new agreement, this new covenant that the book of Hebrews talks about. It goes on in verse 11, and it says, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Now, the New Testament talks about teaching. So it's not saying that the whole concept of teaching someone the Bible is going to go away, but what goes away is that there is no longer a requirement for a human to stand between God and another human. In other words, there doesn't need to be a person there passing on the word of God because now God through his spirit and through his son is speaking directly to his people. That you can pick up your Bible You can read these stories about Jesus, and you can know who God is. You don't have to come through me. I don't have some special access to God that you don't have. I don't have some special knowledge that we're hiding away in a closet that you have to come through a particular person to get to. I want to be here to serve alongside you. I want to be here to be a partner in the ministry with you. I hope I'm able to equip you and encourage you to live out your faith But I'm not your go-between with God. Through Jesus Christ, all of that barrier has been broken down. You are able to know the Lord. He works in your life. He works in your heart. And he begins to transform our life. And he shapes us together as a church. As we continue to think about this, don't miss that in the new covenant, there's no human being, no priest, no person you have to go through in order to know who God is. God does that through his Holy Spirit and through his word. Word and spirit, like we talked about last week. Then you get into verse 12, or at the end of verse 11. They will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. In the new covenant, there is no spiritual hierarchy. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter the knowledge in your head. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your money. It doesn't matter your talent level. In the new covenant, there is no spiritual hierarchy. Those from the least to those to the greatest stand before the Lord in the same way. Uh, One of the ways that this was told to me when I was growing up is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. If you just need a simple uh, way to, to sum it up. That's a good way to sum it up. When we come before the Lord, we all come on the same basis. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And then in verse 12, what happens in this new covenant? I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. 
we don't present new sacrifices every week or every year before the Lord thinking, man, I hope he'll forgive my sins. I hope I can be made free. I hope this guilt can be taken care of. Through Jesus Christ, that's been taken care of once and for all. We are able to know freedom. We are able to know forgiveness. If you're the type of person who beats yourself up over and over and over again about past sins, if you're the type of person that lives under this guilt and shame and condemnation and this idea of your conscience always working against you, don't forget that the power of Jesus is that in the new covenant, we are made free. We are set free from sin and guilt and shame, not so we can live however we want, we'll talk about that in a minute, but we are set free so that we're not constantly going back saying I need a better sacrifice, I need to prove myself to the Lord, I need to do this to clear my conscience. Jesus has taken on all of your junk, he's taken on all of the darkness of your past, he's taken on all of your sins, and through him we have forgiveness, and it's complete, and it's perfect, and we don't for a second take that lightly. And then in verse 13, it says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. Now, translations do a lot of different things with that word obsolete there. Uh, the, uh, kind of the core of the word is that it's no longer useful for anything. It's not that it's bad. Obsolete doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that it's no longer good for anything. Uh, some of you around your computers still own these black discs that are about, about this big, and it still has the Oregon Trail game on there, and you're trying to fit it in the little USB port on the side of your computer to play Oregon Trail, and it doesn't work anymore. That's because it's obsolete. Uh, you could probably find a machine. I bet we have one sitting around the church somewhere that you could plug your floppy disk. Uh, it's probably in Jaron's office, actually. Uh, <laughs> Jared still does all of his student ministry things. He, he set up United on floppy disk. It's incredible. You should go see it. Uh, but a floppy disk, it's not bad. It was amazing. When we could play Lemonade Stand and Oregon Trail off a floppy disk, it was a good thing. But it's just obsolete. It's not how we operate anymore. This idea of something not being useful, being obsolete, it's not that it was bad. It's that where it was leading has now moved to something else. It's been fulfilled. It operates in a different way. On your notes, you find this idea of the new covenant, and I've given you a couple of ways to kind of hold on to and think about the new covenant. The first point under the new covenant is that we no longer live under God's agreement with his people through Moses. The law in the Old Testament that talks about the sacrifices, that talks about how the people should live, that talks about how Israel should be run, that old covenant that God established, that old agreement that God established through, with his people through Moses, we no longer live under that. You're not hearing me say that we no longer need the Old Testament. You're not saying that that was bad, that we've left that. We no longer live under that agreement, though. So things like the food laws, things like the sacrifices, nobody brought a pigeon or a lamb or a grain offering this morning to church. Because that's not how we function. That's not the agreement under which we live as God's people. Those sort of things are no longer there. Romans chapter seven gives you a good summary verse for thinking about this. But now, by dying to what once bound us, 
we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now that doesn't mean that in Jesus you can just do whatever you want to. There's verses in the Bible that address that very clearly that say, okay, you've been set free from the law, you no longer live under this old agreement, but now you live according to God's Spirit. And God's Spirit didn't mysteriously change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's still going to lead his people to live in a way that matches his character and matches his will, but we don't live under that old rule. And that's going to become very important as we think about what it means to worship together as a church because that means that the old agreement doesn't shape and determine and become the blueprint for what we, do, what we do right now. Second point about the new covenant is that Jesus fulfilled that agreement, that old agreement Jesus fulfilled by becoming the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect temple, and the perfect law keeper. A couple more verses from Hebrews that I want you to see out of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11, it says, Day after day, yeah, you can scroll down your phone or, or turn over in, in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. Under this old agreement, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But then in verse 12, when Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus didn't die multiple times over and over. He sacrificed once so that we were able to be made right with God. Then in verse 14, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. As the priest, Jesus was the perfect high priest. As the sacrifice, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. As the temple, Jesus' body itself became the temple. As the law keeper, Jesus was the one who was able to perfectly fulfill and keep God's law. All of these things that were required under the old agreement, why do we not need those anymore? Because Jesus took care of all of that. He is the one who fulfilled and brought to completion all of those things. Which leads to number C, that doesn't work, leads to letter C under that first point. Through Jesus, we are made right with God and enabled to live out God's purpose for his creation. This is the single greatest piece of news in the entire world. And Lord knows we're in need of some good news right now. You turn on the news and there's plenty of bad to go around. The greatest news ever is that what is required to be made right with the creator of the universe has been fulfilled and completed through Jesus Christ. So if you are working your tail off to make God love you, or to earn points with God, or to get right standing with God, stop it. Jesus is taking care of that. And what is required of us is that we repent of our sins, and we turn and we look to Jesus and say, you have done for me what I could never do for myself. That is the new covenant. And when we turn to him, we are made free, our sin is taken away, not so we can do whatever we want to, but so that then we have the freedom to live out God's purposes for our lives. And that leads into the next point about what is this new covenant worship. New covenant worship, we have to keep in mind the first thing. 
the God who is worshiped in the new covenant doesn't change. Okay, this is, please get this. The God of the Old Testament is not in competition with the God of the New Testament. The same God is working in both times. In the New Testament, what we find, though, is that the worship of God's people is focused on Jesus. This is the revolution that happens with the church early in the New Testament, is how do they go from worshiping the God of Israel, Yahweh, to now focusing that worship not on a second God, they don't consider Jesus a second God, but they begin to see that God took on flesh, and he came to us, and he made a way for us to be made right with him, and so they begin to worship Jesus. And if that doesn't feel revolutionary to you, it's probably because you grew up in church like me. And we begin to take for granted the fact that we give worship to Jesus. But nobody this morning is giving worship to me. Nobody this morning is giving worship to Jaron. Nobody this morning is giving worship to any one person. We give our worship to Jesus. And when you are talking with your friends and family about Christianity, and they push back on that point, and they say, why do you worship Jesus? Thank God that they push back on that point because it means they're actually paying attention to what you're saying. You want someone to disagree with you at that moment because that should seem like the strangest, most revolutionary thing imaginable to them because you are saying that Jesus is God and that the people in the Old Testament, as they worship God, now we know who God is and how he works among his people and that worship is given to Jesus Christ. And this is this revolution that begins to happen with the new, kev- new covenant, begins to happen throughout the New Testament, which leads to the second thing. So the God of the Old Testament doesn't change, but then that worship is placed on Jesus. Second, worshipers continue to worship wholeheartedly, individually and in groups, but the language and actions of worship are used in new ways. In the Old Testament, you couldn't get away with half-hearted worship. The prophets like Amos and Malachi wouldn't, wouldn't have any of that. In the Old Testament, people worshiped individually and in groups. We see that in the book of Psalms. But what happens in the New Testament is all of this worship language from the Old Testament begins to be used in new ways. Let me give you a couple of examples. The first example is the word priest. The word priest. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. As you come to him... The living stone, talking about Jesus, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What that verse means, and what you find other places in the New Testament, is everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ is also a priest. So if anybody asks you what happened this weekend, your answer tomorrow is, I became a priest. I realized that that I'm a priest. You know, you can really play it up. You can wear a white collar to work or, or to school. And this is really fun. And let me tell you why this is fun. Because when I have conversations with people, I generally try to delay as long as possible telling someone that I'm a pastor. Because there's the how did they treat you before they know you're a pastor, and how they treat you after they know that you're a pastor. 
And I welcome you to try this out because it's really a lot of fun. Uh, so people use certain language before they know you're a pastor. Then they develop these made-up cuss words after they find out that you're a pastor because they feel guilty in using the words that they used earlier in the conversation after they find out. So just tell people you're a priest and find out how they act after they find out that you're a priest. But the point being, under the new covenant, this language of what it means to be a priest is completely transformed, is completely changed. It's no longer this one group that's set aside as priest. It's that all of those who are in Christ as God's people are priests. Another word is the word sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verses one through two, it says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper there's that word, worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The idea of sacrifice is no longer an animal that's brought, it's the idea that I'm sacrificing myself, I'm giving myself to the Lord. The idea of worship here is really transformed. And this is where, if you've grown up in church, it's so easy to slip into a certain type of language, and we're gonna talk about this for a few minutes. It's so easy to slip into certain types of language. If we're not careful, we call the 30 minutes before the sermon worship. Or we say we're going to go to worship, as if worship is what happens in the 70 minutes that we gather on Sunday morning, that this is worship. Or the music is considered the worship, but not the other parts. What you find in the, old, I mean, in the New Testament is this concept of worship is never just the music. It's never just what happens on Sunday morning. It is the full offering of our lives. So the way that we acted in the car on the way to church is just as much worship as what happens when you get inside this particular building. And what you do when you wake up tomorrow morning and you go to school or you go to work or you interact with your friends, that is worship. We don't ever stop worshiping. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, all of our lives become this act of worship. And so this language of worship is completely transformed. There's a great quote uh, from a, a book called Worship by the Book, uh, and I'll, I'll try to get this information to you, but here's the, here's the quote. New Covenant worship means that we cannot imagine that the church gathers for worship on Sunday morning if by this we mean that we then engage in something that we have not been engaging in the rest of the week. New covenant worship terminology prescribes constant worship. If you come together with a church gathering on Sunday morning and it feels cold and dry and unengaging, part of that problem might be us on stage. Equally so, part of the problem might be that you're trying to manufacture in 70 minutes what has not been a part of your life for the other part of the week. If we're engaged in worship of God throughout the week, giving our entire lives to him, living for him, then when you come together on Sunday morning, it's gonna be an overflow of everything that God's been doing in your life throughout the week. And when you engage in worship here, then it's gonna springboard into saying, Lord, I wanna worship you at work, I wanna worship you with my family, I wanna worship you in everything that I do. And so when we try to manufacture something on Sunday morning called worship or create a worship experience that doesn't match the rest of our lives, it is gonna feel weird. 
And it is going to feel disengaging. It is going to feel cold. And so we want to say that this, what we do on Sunday morning, is part of what it means to worship, but it's not the totality of it. If it tries, if this is a replacement for the rest of our lives, it, it's just not going to work. It's going to feel really out of place. Which takes us to the next thing. In New Covenant worship, the place, time, and actions of worship are extended and, and they're changed. Here's what I mean by this. In the New Covenant, there is no one single place where God's people gather for worship. There's, not, there's no longer a temple because Jesus' body became that temple. And not only that, but we find out in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6 that we become the temple of God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. 1 Corinthians six nineteen, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So what does this have to do with anything? What it has to do with anything is we have to be really cautious about how we speak about things. And especially if you grew up in a church culture, uh, you grew up with certain phrases, uh, like we're going to church. I probably told my kids yesterday that very phrase, we're gonna go to church th tomorrow morning. But if we're not careful, what we communicate in that is that the church is just a location and it's just something that happens on Sunday mornings, but church doesn't really matter the rest of the week. And you might say, man, you're really nitpicking. Like, what does this matter about this terminology? I realize it kind of feels nitpicky, but the words we use often reflect <laughs> what's in our hearts, and the words we use shape how our kids think about worship, how our kids think about the Christian life, how the way people around us think about the Christian life, and so those words really do matter. Even calling this place, we don't know really how to refer to this room. It's hard to think about what, we, we sometimes call it a worship center, and I, I want to come up with a better term because worship center implies this is the place we come to worship. This is the center of our worship. I grew up in a world where the building that we did big church, we didn't know what to call it, so you went to Sunday school and big church uh, after that. But when you went to big church, you did the big church in the sanctuary. That is terrible new covenant language. Uh, in the new covenant, under Christ, the sanctuary is in heaven where he has fulfilled all of the requirements of the old covenant and we are most certainly not gathered in, in God's only sanctuary and so it's so hard to think about how do we refer to this place. What we find is when there is a place that Christians gather, it's not the church building, it's not the sanctuary, it's not the temple, it's just the place that God has given them. And in the new covenant, Worship happens in all places, in all locations. And so what we've done sometimes in church is when we've gotten that idea that worship doesn't have to happen in a particular building, what we've done in response to that is we've made some really ugly buildings. Because uh, here's, how, here's how the mentality works in Christianity. Okay, so there's not a particular building where worship has to happen. True. God's people can gather anywhere and worship him together. True. So we'll throw up the ugliest looking building that we can possibly throw up and we can still have worship there. True, 
Except what does that communicate to the world around us about what it means to gather and, and worship God? Churches went through this, this thing in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and we have a chance to participate in here at Emmaus where they put up these metal buildings. Uh, just look at our West Wing building here, here at Emmaus. They put up these metal buildings, and they worked, and they were functional, and they were a place for God's people together but sometimes what that gave off to people around us was Christians must not appreciate beauty very much or, or they must not appreciate architecture very much. And so what we're trying to do under the new covenant is say there's no one place that God's people have to gather for worship. But when we gather, we want that gathering to express to the world around us what it really means to worship. And so we're always battling this idea of place, which leads us to the idea of time. Under the new covenant, we worship at all times. So there's not one particular time that God's people have to get together and worship. We're worshiping always. So preachers over and over and over again had said, you don't have, here's what we said, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. Gathering in a location at a particular time doesn't make you a Christian. And preachers said that so much that people started to actually believe us. And so they stopped attending church at all. Because if I can be a Christian, and it doesn't matter if I come to church or not, then I'm just not going to come to church, and I'm going to continue to do my own thing. We had, a, we had a deacon at our church in Mississippi, and his boat was called Visitation, so that when he went out on his boat, he just told the pastor he was out on Visitation. Uh, I don't make that story up. That is an absolutely true story. That uh, his, his boat was called Visitation because he say, I can worship the Lord wherever I am. I'm just gonna call my boat this and I'll always be out on Visitation. Um, so we've created this idea that I can worship anywhere so it doesn't ever matter if I come to church. Over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about why it does matter that we gather as a church. But under the new covenant, we wanna lay out this idea that there's not a particular time that we have together for worship. What this means, and where this kind of gets a little bit controversial, is when you begin to talk about the Sabbath. So what does it mean for Christians to relate to the Sabbath? We'll do a sermon series at some point on the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament because you start to open a can of worms and all the worms start crawling around. It's hard to get the worms back in the can, but this idea of, of a Sabbath, the idea of a Sabbath was part of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Agreement that God made with his people through Moses. And just as Jesus fulfilled all of the other law, Jesus also perfectly fulfilled the Sabbath. So we no longer live under that. However, we do learn from the Sabbath, we do learn from how God relates to his people about the need for rest, about the need for gathering together. And so we don't meet on the Sabbath, we meet on what the New Testament calls the Lord's Day the day of Christ's resurrection. The, uh, sometimes it's called the eighth day. And so that's what shapes our gathering together. But what I want you to gather in all of this is that under the new covenant, place and time have been extended. So you worship God in all places, even if your boat's called visitation, and you worship God at all times, whether it's Monday, Saturday, Sunday, at all of those times we're worshiping God. Which leads us to the last points. We're gonna run through these really quickly. New covenant music worship, what does this mean? Number one, the Old Testament isn't our blueprint 
for corporate worship. So when we gather together here, the Old Testament isn't our blueprint. That's not saying anything negative about the Old Testament. It's this incredible picture, this incredible, powerful example of worship, but it's not our blueprint. Number two, we have to remember this danger of performance versus participation. Worship is not gathering to watch a performance. Worship is always a participatory activity. It's always us engaging ourselves. And parents, we set the example for our kids on this. Uh, Let me read you this quote as we get ready to wrap up here in a second. Let me read you this quote about new covenant worship. How utterly different should a child's thinking be who is raised in a Christian home than that of the child who is reared in a home where secularism rules all week, but where people go to church on Sunday to worship for half an hour before the sermon. We want our kids to know that worship is a participation activity. We want our kids to be engaged, not watching a performance. And this impacts so much of how music functions in a church because there's such a danger that the music, the worship component of a church becomes a concert. And if I don't like your concert and I don't like what I'm watching, I'm not going to participate and I want to go to the place that has the better concert because I like that better. Worship was never designed to be a concert that we watch. It's something that we engage our hearts and our minds and our lives in. And so it's participation, not performance. And the new covenant is the foundation for why that's true in our lives and why that's true in our churches. And then finally, our words must match our actions. In new covenant worship, our words and our actions have to be in perfect agreement, that we exist to proclaim and display Jesus. Hebrews 13 is the best summary I know of this in the New Testament. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So how do I worship in the new covenant? I use my lips to speak about the goodness of Christ. It becomes this praise that comes out of me, not just when I gather at 1030, but my whole life. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Under the new covenant, we don't bring burnt sacrifices. We bring burnt casseroles. That's how new covenant worship works we don't bring sacrifices we're not coming before God trying to make ourselves right with God we're sharing with others we're doing good to others we're praising God for what he's done in our lives because when Jesus has transformed our lives from the inside out when he has set us free from sin where we don't live in fear but we live in freedom we're set free to be able to love to be able to put our faith into action and to be able to share the hope of Christ with the world around us. So as we think about what it means to be a church that worships, I want us to be shaped by the idea of the new covenant. And more than anything this morning, I want you to know what it is to live under the new covenant. I want you to know what it is to live in the freedom and the hope and the forgiveness that Jesus provides, that these students have thought about all weekend But if you're here this morning and you know you live under guilt and you know you live under condemnation and you know you live under shame about your past, I want you to know 
that you don't have to get yourself right and then come to the Lord. You don't have to take care of all those problems and then he will love you. He has made a way for you to be set free and that way comes through Jesus Christ. Here in just a minute, we're gonna sing a song together. If we can pray for you, if you just need a moment during this song to sit where you are and reflect on how God's been at work in your life, we want you to be able to do that. If the best way that you can respond to God's word this morning is just to sing this song with all your heart, then let's do that together. Let me pray for us, and we're gonna wrap up our service this morning. Father, I know that this concept of of a new covenant or a new agreement can feel very abstract, um, but these pieces of doctrine and theology are the foundation for why we do what we do. And so we don't come together trying to share five steps to have a better life. We come together because we desperately need your word to be the foundation of our lives. And we need your spirit to be who sets us free, who transforms our lives. Father, we want to be a church that functions according to the new covenant. Because we want to be a church that's focused completely on Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for these students. I thank you for their desire to honor you. God, I pray that they would worship you at school tomorrow. God, I pray for the parents, for the adults who are gathered here this morning, that they would worship you through their lives, that as we go from this place, as we go to work, as we interact with our neighbors, Father, that those would be acts of worship as we speak about your goodness and as we do good and share with those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.